Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Destiny Church. Sorry I can't be with you here in person today, but my son Judah on Tuesday tested positive for COVID-19, and so me and my family have had to go, go into quarantine. And though I would love to have been here this morning to preach God's Word to you, I just wanted to be cautious and not wanting to spread COVID and trying to be a good citizen and all of those good things. So we are in quarantine right now with my family. I appreciate you keeping us in prayer. We're trusting in God and believing he's going to bring us through this as he's bringing all of us through this together. Amen. But I still have a great word for you today from the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts. We love going through books of the Bible at Destiny Church. And so we're in Acts chapter 22. That's where we're going to pick up the story today. But I'd also invite you to open with me in your Bible to Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Acts chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul, as we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, he is in the city of Jerusalem. He went there with a mandate from God. He's bearing witness to Christ in that city, that city where uh, Jesus himself was crucified, buried, and risen again. Now Paul is there bearing witness to Christ. He has been arrested, and where we see him now is he's about to be put on trial in front of the Jewish court, the, the Sanhedrin, which was made up of the religious leaders of his day. The same religious leaders, the same body, the same court that had wrongfully condemned Christ to death. Now Paul stands before that same body as he gives witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And so Acts chapter 22 invites you to go with me there. We're going to pick up the story at the end of Acts 22 and we're going to get, go on into Acts chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 30. It says, On the next day, this was the day after Paul had been arrested, that whole riot, everything that was going on there. The next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's the Roman guard, the, the chief centurion, he unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So uh, the, the, the Roman centurion, the, the guard there, the, the governor there in the, city of Rome, in the city of Jerusalem, he wants to get to the bottom of why this riot started, why the whole city was in an uproar. He, he couldn't ascertain from Paul what was going on. And so he, he takes Paul down to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders that had participated in this riot. And so this governor is trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so now on into uh, chapter 23, it says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brothers, I have lived my whole life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by to strike Paul on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And now then Paul that one part, now then Paul perceived that one part of the group were Sadducees 
and the other Pharisees. These are the, the two sort of theological camps of the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, Sadducees and Pharisees. And so Paul sees that they're, they're sort of part of two different theological camps. And so Paul cries out after he realizes this, he cries out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is, res it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of these things. Luke here is giving us a little bit of historical context so that we can understand why this was such a dispute in this council meeting as Paul is put on trial. You see, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the spiritual realm. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. But the Sadducees were like the liberal theologians of our day, and even in liberal parts of Christianity today that deny the deity of Christ, deny the resurrection, deny the miracles of Christ. They sort of uh, try to take parts of the Bible and, and act like they're good principles, but they deny all the supernatural things that are in the Bible. That's not a new thing. In fact, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. That, that sort of thought and theology descends directly from the Sadducees that were alive even in Jesus' day. And so the Sadducees do not believe in the spiritual. They do not believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the miraculous. And they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so when Paul says this, it, it puts the whole council into this great debate. And it says in verse 9, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and contended sharply, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, the Roman governor, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so this debate was not a polite debate. This debate was not just a debate about ideas. This debate became one that didn't just happen in the realm of words, but they began to fight amongst each other and even begin to beat one another. And even Paul is now thrown into the midst as the majority of them were Sadducees. They, the Pharisees were outnumbered. And so Paul's life, once again, is in danger. And so the Roman governor sends the soldiers in to surround Paul, to rescue him, and to take him back into the barracks arrested. And verse 11 tells us that the following night, the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, stood by Paul and said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we spend time studying today, I pray that the truth of your word would become alive to us like never before. 
Lord, that your spirit would shine into our spirit, into our hearts, illuminating your revelation to us. And Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers. And that your light, that we would live in the light of your truth, in the light of your revelation, in the light of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to stop there today and we'll, we'll pick the story right back up there where we left off. But there is, is one thing that is central to this passage, and, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the central issue in this passage, and so I want to spend some time today talking about the resurrection. It's not only the central issue of this passage, it's also the central issue of all of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the essential and most fundamental Christian doctrine. It is the issue at the center, at the very heart of our Christian faith. It is the one doctrine upon which Christianity either stands or falls. Without the resurrection, there truly is no Christian faith. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 13, Paul says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the central issue that was tearing this group apart. It is the central issue at the heart of Christianity because if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, th there is nothing here. There is no gospel, there is no church, there is no salvation, and there is nothing of value in Christ if he has not risen from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, he is a liar. He is a lunatic because he himself promised that he would die for sin and rise victoriously from the dead. If he did not rise, then, then Christ is a liar or a madman. But if he did rise, then Jesus Christ is Lord. He is who he said he was. Belief in Christ and the resurrection, it is a matter of faith. We, we as Christians, we receive this by faith, but, and this is so important that we understand this, but our faith should not be a blind faith. We are not called to have a, a blind faith, a, a, a trust in, in things blindly as far as it comes to Christianity. No, we are called and we should have a well-informed faith, a robust faith. The Bible says that we should be ready to give a defense for our faith, the hope that we have in Christ. We should always be ready to defend our faith with facts, with truth. And so this morning, for the rest of our time together, I want to focus in on this issue of the resurrection, this issue that the apostles preached about in the early days of the church, and now some two decades later, as Paul is put on trial in the same city before the same body, 
that had Christ crucified, he now testifies. He now bears witness to this same truth, the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the same truth that you and I, dear Christian, fellow believer, saint, this is the same truth that you and I are called to bear witness to as well. And are you equipped to do so? Are you ready to do so? If someone challenges the, the issue of the resurrection, are you ready to give a defense? I hope that you are. And it is my hope as we go through this today that we bolster your faith, we strengthen your faith, that you leave here today with a, a more solidified faith in Jesus and in the resurrection from the dead. So how can you know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? How can you know? You didn't see it. You weren't there. How can you be sure? And it's true, we were not there. I was not there when Jesus rose from the dead. There's, there's no more eyewitnesses alive today that we could go and interview and ask about it. So how can we know? Well, the same way that we can be sure that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the same way that we are sure of any historical event. If I were to ask you who was the first president of the United States of America, all of you would tell me George Washington. Are you sure? Were you there? Did you see it? Did you see the day that he was sworn into office? No, of, of course you weren't. But how do you know that? If I were to ask you, was Julius Caesar a, a Roman emperor? You would say, yes, of course. How do you know? Were you there? Did you see it? If I were to ask you, who was it that signed the Emancipation Proclamation? You would all answer, it was Abraham Lincoln. How do you know? Were you there? Did you see it? Do you know someone who saw it? Well, no, of course not. None of us were alive during those times yet. However, we know all of these facts to be true. We know it is true that George Washington was the first United States president. We know that it is true that Julius Caesar was an emperor of Rome. We know that it was true that it was Abraham Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But how can you be sure? We examine the historical evidence. We look and we read credible sources. And so it is with the empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ, it is a historical fact. It is a fact of history that there was a man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish rabbi in the first century. He had a following. He was crucified. And that three days later, his tomb was empty and that his followers, his disciples, his apostles claimed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Everything that I just told you is a historical fact. We have the, 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 the accounts, of course, of Scripture laid down for us, but it's, it's not only the gospel accounts that tell us this fact of history. There's also early uh, historical accounts not in the Bible that tell this same fact. The New Testament authors, the, the gospel writers, their testimony is, is bolstered by other historical writers from the time 
of Christ, that Jesus was a real man, that Jesus really died, that his tomb three days later was really empty, and that his disciples believed they had seen him alive. Everything that I just said, you don't even have to believe that the Bible is true. All of this is attested to by history. And there is no credible historian alive today that would deny those things. What the issue then comes to is how do we explain these facts? How do we explain the empty tomb? It is a historical fact. And so what is it that best explains this fact? So I want to lay for you this morning uh, some evidence. I'm going to lay for you this morning some evidence from the Bible, God's Word. And then I'm going to lay for you some evidence, not necessarily from the Bible, but circumstantial evidence, secondary evidences that are for the, the resurrection, for the empty tomb. So biblical evidence for the resurrection. These are all evidences that we see in the Bible. Jesus' death and resurrection was prophesied in advance. His crucifixion was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, 750 years before Christ. His resurrection was predicted a thousand years before Christ in Psalm chapter 16. Next, Jesus himself predicted his own resurrection on numerous occasions. We see this in Matthew 16, verse 21, where Jesus said, I must go, I must die, and on the third day I will be raised to life. The next, as we see from the biblical evidence, is that Jesus died. The gospel writers, they tell us, on the cross, Jesus died. He gave up the ghost. He breathed his last. When they came to check his body, they put a spear in his side. Blood and water flowed from the wound. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. It was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody knew who this man was. Everybody knew what tomb he was laid in. They saw him lay Jesus in this tomb. It was a well-known place. There are those who say, well, oh, the disciples, they went to the wrong tomb. Somehow their GPS got mixed up and it led them to the wrong tomb. That's a joke. It's not a credible explanation for the empty tomb. Next, we see that Jesus appeared physically alive three days after his death. He appeared to multiple witnesses at multiple different times. Jesus' resurrected body was the same body that had been crucified. The disciples are able to recognize him by sight. Mary Magdalene recognizes Jesus not by looking at him, but by hearing the sound of his voice. Thomas who we know is Doubting Thomas, who said, unless I see the scars in his hand and put my fingers into the scar in his side, I will not believe. That was Thomas. But later on in John chapter 20, Jesus appears to Thomas and the disciples, and he holds out his hands and he says, look. He holds out his side. He says, go ahead, Thomas, put your finger in my side. Thomas cries out, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus resurrected in the same physical body that he had been crucified in. 
Jesus' uh, resurrection was recorded in Scripture shortly after it occurred. There are those who say that, well, the Gospels were written hundreds of years after Christ. That is not true. The Gospel of Mark was most likely written, the, the latest it could have been written, historians now tell us, scholars now tell us, the latest Mark's Gospel could have been written was in the mid to late 50s AD. That's just 20 or so years after Christ, less than 20 years. But now there's some evidence that even as early as 37 AD, portions of Mark's gospel had been written just four years after the resurrection. What this means is that there were still eyewitnesses who were alive at the time that the gospels were being written where they could have verified the facts of the empty tomb. This was not a legend that developed years after everyone had died. Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. Think about that. What was it that could convince James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, Mary, his own mother, to worship him as God? Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by his most bitter enemies at the time, such as Saul of Tarsus, who was later known as the Apostle Paul. How else can we explain Saul's transformation from Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, to, G, to, to the Apostle Paul? How can we explain his transformation other than that he really saw Jesus there risen from the dead? These are just the biblical evidences for the resurrection, and there are many, many more. But I want to move from the biblical evidence to, to circumstantial evidence, evidence that, that tells us through circumstance that the tomb was empty. And I want to pick back up on the biblical evidence and, and just talk about the fact that all of Jesus' disciples were transformed. They were transformed men. This is an evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, prior to witnessing the resurrected Christ, all of the disciples were afraid. They were cowards. They were timid. They were hiding behind locked doors in fear that they would be persecuted just like Jesus was. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denies Christ even knowing him three times. But upon seeing Jesus risen from the dead, they are totally convinced. They are changed men forever. And all of the 10 remaining disciples, all of, or, or the, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them died a martyr's death. All but the apostle John died for this testimony that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They not only saw Jesus risen, but they believed it to be true. It's not only that the, the, the tomb was empty, they believed it. They believed it with all of their heart. Now the question, some people say that they, they made this up, that it wasn't real, that the disciples fabricated this whole thing. But would they have died for a lie? A lie that they knew to be a lie? 
Now, people will die for a lie, but they will not die for a lie if they know that it is not true. The disciples truly believed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They died for that confession. Simon Peter, crucified. Andrew, crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip was hung upside down with iron hooks through his ankles. Bartholomew, crucified. Thomas, stabbed with a spear. Matthew, stabbed in the back. Thaddeus, crucified. Simon, the zealot, crucified. John, the apostle, he ended up dying of old age, but that was only after he had been boiled alive in oil. And when he had miraculously survived that torture, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. James, the brother of Jesus, who saw Christ risen from the dead, was thrown off of the temple, the top of the temple, and stoned to death. What we also see is that worship changed. Worship changed. The day of worship changed. God's people traditionally had worshiped on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. But after Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Christians began to gather for worship on that day to remember and to celebrate the resurrection. And not only did the day of worship change, but the object of worship as Jesus began to be worshipped not only as a man, but he was worshipped as God in the flesh. And no devout Jew would have worshipped a man without proof that he was the one true God by raising himself from the dead. Another circumstantial evidence that tells us that the gospel accounts are true is that the empty tomb was discovered by women. Now, in first century Judaism, women were not respected at all. In fact, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. Women were not respected. They were not uh, given, a, you know, not, not only could they not vote, they couldn't even testify in court. Nevertheless, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are women. And you have to ask yourself, if you were a first century Jew, as the apostles were, if they were going to invent this story of the resurrection, they would have never chosen to have women be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And on top of that, the first eyewitness was Mary Magdalene, a woman who at, who at one point had been demon-possessed, a demoniac that Jesus had set free of demons. And if you were going to invent this story, the one person you wouldn't pick to be your star witness would have been the woman, Mary Magdalene. Nevertheless, this is what the Gospels tell us. The early church preaching, as we've seen all through the book of Acts, as we've studied it over the last year, the early church, early church preaching was based on the empty tomb. They started their preaching ministry in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus died and was buried. They didn't have to convince the crowds of the empty tomb. It was a known fact that the tomb was empty. 
They only gave the explanation, this is why the tomb is empty, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. If the tomb wasn't empty, they could not have preached in Jerusalem. What would have stopped the, 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 the movement of the early church in its tracks would have been for the Jews to produce the body of Christ, but the tomb was empty. It was known and widely known as an accepted fact. Finally, we've seen that what has happened over the last two millennia is that Christianity has exploded. There was two other men who died that day with Jesus. No one knows who they were. No one knows their names. Why? Because they are still dead. There is no other explanation for the church of Jesus Christ apart from the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, that Jesus is not buried in a tomb, but that he is alive and that he is alive forevermore and that he is seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning as the creator of the universe. Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive in the power of his resurrection, even though every force of man throughout history has tried to stop the church, has tried to destroy Christianity, yet the church of Jesus Christ marches on in the power of the Holy Spirit of God as Jesus poured out his spirit on his church on that day of Pentecost. These facts are clear. The fact of the empty tomb is undisputed. It is historical evidence. The question you have to answer is, what explanation makes the most sense of these historical facts? What explanation? How can you explain these things? The biblical evidence, the circumstantial evidence, the historical evidence. What explains this evidence. Now, there have been those who have tried to offer other explanations for the empty tomb, and I'll give them to you. These are the best ones. These are the best arguments for the empty tomb, other than the resurrection. This is what people truly believe today. I find this shocking, by the way. Many people say that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that he passed out, that he swooned, that he sort of went into a coma. And I want to quote to you from John Stott on this theory, the theory that Jesus didn't die but only swooned on the cross. This is what John Stott says. He says, can we really believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, that Jesus could survive? That he could survive in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth nor food nor medical care? That he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb and to do so without disturbing the Roman guard, that he could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death. This is more incredible. This idea is more incredible than believing in the resurrection. 
that Jesus wouldn't, had Jesus passed out on the cross and somehow accomplished the superhuman feat, when he appeared to his disciples, he would have had to have intense medical care. This is not what happened. Jesus didn't swoon on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. The only way Jesus could have deceived his executioners would have been for himself to have stopped breathing, which itself, in and of itself, would have killed him. The second thing, the, the explanation that people give, is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but that his body was stolen. What would have had to have happened for that is that this Roman regiment, this, this intensely trained Roman guard, all of them would have had to have fallen asleep at the same time, even though the, just the act of them falling asleep on duty would have cost them their life. They would have had to stay asleep, fall into such a deep sleep that they wouldn't be awakened by the breaking of the Roman seal on the tomb or the rolling away of the enormous two-ton stone or the carrying off of the dead body. This is beyond belief that the guards simply fell asleep and the disciples snuck in there covertly. And then you have to ask yourself, what would the motivation have been for the disciples at that point? Why would they steal a corpse? There's, Jesus has a few followers at this point. What would their motivation have been to steal a corpse and then all of them die? For what? There was no motivation for this. There's another theory, and this is what Muslims believe, the, the religion of Islam teaches, that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but it was his twin brother or a lookalike. Muslims believe that it was actually Judas who was crucified on the cross. However, Jesus' own mother was there watching this happen. Are we to believe that Jesus' own mother didn't recognize her son as he died on the cross? That it was Judas dying there and Jesus' mother Mary somehow confused Judas for him? It's beyond belief. The other thing that people often say is that Jesus' own followers, his disciples, hallucinated the resurrection. That they all somehow wanted it to happen so bad that they all hallucinated it. However, hallucinations, dreams, these are not public events. These are private events that happen individually. And we see that Jesus on multiple occasions appeared not to one individual, but multiple groups of people. Even up to 500 people at once. Hallucinations are not group events. Jesus' appearances were varied over a period of time. It didn't just happen one day. And then... After 40 days, apparently all of their hallucinations stopped at the same time for everyone. Additionally, what we see is that when Jesus rose from the dead and appears to Mary Magdalene, and she goes and tells the disciples that Christ is risen, that they don't even believe it themselves. It's, it's not even in their mind that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's not until they see the risen Christ that they believe in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is not a myth. It is not a fable. It is a historical reality. It is not fiction. It is the truth. The bodily resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, it is a fact. 
And it is the only thing that makes sense of the evidence that we see. This is the testimony. This is what the apostles bared witness to. This is what Paul bared witness to in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this is what you and I are called to bear witness to as Christians today who have been transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is what makes our future resurrection possible. When the Bible talks about the hope that we have, it's talking about the hope of the future resurrection when Christ returns. The, the talk of hope in the New Testament is not talking about a hope uh, for just a raise at the job or a hope for a spouse or the hope to have children who are wonderful and well-adjusted members of polite society. That is not our Christian hope. When the New Testament talks about the hope we have as believers in Jesus, it's only talking about one thing, only one. It's talking about our future resurrection from the dead, just as Jesus rose from the dead. Death has been defeated through the power of the resurrection. And this hope that we have of the future resurrection is a hope that sustains us in the face of unimaginable tragedy. It's a hope that sustains us through seasons of mourning and seasons of loss. It's a hope that sustains us even in the face of death because Jesus has conquered death and promises to his believers a future resurrection. It is this hope that the Apostle Paul was bearing witness to. It is this hope to which he himself was pressing on to attain. I want to close by reading to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, open there with me, 1 Corinthians 15. This whole chapter is the Apostle Paul's defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There were some in the Corinthian church that were denying that there is such a thing as a resurrection. They were denying that it was possible. And so the Apostle Paul sits down and, and he writes this defense. And I can hear even as I read this, his own voice possibly there in the Sanhedrin giving witness to these same facts. And it is a bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to read it. And, and as I read it, I, I want you to, to hear his words. And I want it to strengthen your faith. And I want the, the hope of the resurrection to be truly a reality in your life. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Have you believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you have not believed, today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, and to believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, shed his blood for your sin, and rose again on the third day in victory to give you new life and to give new life to all who would believe upon him. 
For those of us who confess to believe in the resurrection, the question for us is, does our lifestyle, does our, do our actions line up with our confession? Do we live like we really believe in the resurrection? Do we live like we really believe in the future resurrection that is ours in Christ? The closing words that the Apostle Paul has for the Corinthians is, therefore, let us always be abounding, working, for the kingdom of God. Therefore, what does that mean? It means in light of the fact that there is a future resurrection for the dead, from the dead, let us work for the things that do not perish. Let us be focused on the eternal, not the temporary, not the things that are passing away. Let us always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that what we're laboring for is not in vain. Paul bore witness to the resurrection. All of the apostles paid for that witness with their own life, with intense persecution. Are we willing, likewise, to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. I pray that you would galvanize it in our hearts that we would not only confess the resurrection, but that we would truly live a life touched and changed by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, that we would do so to the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.